So I would like to invite Charlie Ruth, one of our awesome students, who is going to come forward and read to us our scripture passage for today. Um, and this comes from Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, and each had six wings. Two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. And I heard the voices of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Let us pray. Gracious God, open our hearts and minds so that the words just read and the words to come might transform us in a way that gives you glory and honor. Amen. It was the year King Uzziah died, or it was the year President Kennedy died, or it was the year 9-11 rattled the world to its core, or it was the year of the Pulse nightclub massacre. It was the year when things fell apart, when foundations were shaken, when the markets crumbled, when all that had once been familiar now seemed long ago and far away. It was the year King Uzziah died. Today, we're at the end of a long, tumultuous political campaign, and we could be here on Sunday morning following the presidential elections, wringing our hands and saying it was the year Hillary Rodham Clinton became president. But instead, we're saying it was the year Donald Trump became president. It was a bad time, a shaky time, a frightening time for Isaiah. In the midst of change, in the wake of uncertainty, God asked, whom shall I send? And Isaiah responded. <laughs> That's really sad that I have to do what Donkey just did. Pick me, pick me, pick me, you know, and Chuck's going, oh, is there anybody else? You guys know the clip. Okay, so actually, the Bible says, Isaiah said, here am I, send me. The book of Isaiah is an important book in our Bible. With the exception of the Psalms, it is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament more than any other book of the Old Testament. It even had been referred to our church fathers as the fifth gospel because of the oracles that predicted the virgin birth. During the Reformation, Isaiah was lifted up because it held the eternal word of God. Today, it's appreciated for its wonderful messages of peace and justice. Now, Isaiah is a fairly hefty tome. It has 66 chapters, and the scholars agree that most likely it's a collection of two or maybe even three prophets. They even refer to the book as 
Isaiah 1, 2, and 3, even though in our Bibles we just get one title, Isaiah. In chapter 6, we encounter the prophet Isaiah of the southern kingdom. Now, this is where Jerusalem is, where the temple is that was built by King Solomon, the dwelling place of the Lord. And this is the famous call story of Isaiah the prophet. When Isaiah entered the temple, he was probably as preoccupied with the world's news and events as anyone else back in that time. Judah had enjoyed prosperity, lots of prosperity, during the middle decades of the 8th century because we had a long-lived, powerful king, Uzziah. When kings died, there was uncertainty, instability, and violence. And it was in this real-world situation when Isaiah had this vision and this encounter with our awesome God. But something incredible happened. The events of the world were so large and so important until he saw God high and lifted up. Suddenly, Isaiah found that all of his perceptions, all of his priorities were realigned. Did you catch the vision of God in our scripture reading? A tiny piece of God's robe filled the entire sanctuary. N.T. Wright notes, what if while we're casually looking around in the sanctuary at each other, or in this case, in the campus center, and someone suddenly showed us God on the same scale? It's like having a dollhouse with a hinge, and someone lifts up the roof, and we get to see a glimpse of God in all of his glory, high and lifted up. That kind of vision would probably rattle us to our bones, we would go, what in the world is this? And wow, how small and puny we are. This was Isaiah's reaction. Everything else in the world, everything else in life, everything else that had previously been so important in occupying his mind and his heart shrank down into comparison with the glory of God sitting on his throne. So I'd like you to listen to the poem by Michael Coffey. It's also printed in your bulletin, so if you have really good eyesight, because it's really small. So if it's helpful for you to see the visual, but just listen to this version um, of God, and it's called God's Bathrobe. God sat Sunday in her Adirondack chair Reading the New York Times and sipping strawberry lemonade, her pink robe flowing down to the ground. The garment hem was fluff and frill, and it spilled holiness down into the sanctuary, into the cup and the nostrils of the singing people. One thread trickled loveliness into a funeral rite as the mourners looked in the face of death and heard the story of a life truer than goodness. A torn piece of the robe's edge flopped onto a war in southern Sudan and caused heartbeats to skip, and soldiers looked into themselves deeply. One threadbare strand of the divine belt almost knocked over a polar bear floating on a loose berg in the warming sea. One silky string wove its way through Jesus' cross and tied itself to desert-parched immigrants with swollen tongues and a woman with ovarian cancer and two young sons. You won't believe this, but a single hair-thin fiber floated onto the yacht of a rich man, and he gasped 
when he saw everything as it really was. The, the hem fell to and fro across the universe, filling space and time and gaps between the subatomic world with the effervescent presence of the one who is the is. And even in the slight space between lovers in bed, the holiness flows and wakes up the body to feel beyond the feeling and know beyond the knowing. And even as we monotheize and trinitize and speculate and doubt, even our doubting, the threads of holiness trickle into our lives. And the seraphim keep singing, holy, 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 and flapping their wings like baby birds. And God says, give it a rest a while. And God takes another drink of her summertime drink and smiles at the way you are reading this filament now and hums, it's a good day to be God. The awesomeness of God really puts our lives into perspective, doesn't it? In this poem, I hear that each living thing reveals some aspect of God's presence. God is both greater than the whole of our universe, and as creator, he interpenetrates all created things, the thread of holiness weaving a way through our lives. I'm also reminded that we are just on earth for a blip of time, and that our cranky relatives and that our political leaders are also only on earth for a blip of time. But we know that God's kingdom goes on forever and ever. And we also know, in the meantime, we live in a broken world. We don't have to look far to see the hurt caused by the insatiable hunger of cancer or dementia, or the heartache caused by betrayal of those we loved or the pain from sucker punches thrown by bullies, addiction, and abuse, or the mean-spirited posts on social media. It may not be fair, it may not feel right, it may not be easy, but this is the world into which God sends Isaiah. This is the world into which God sends us. In Isaiah, we learn that the encounter comes before the sending. Think of the thread of holiness as that string tied around your finger so that you can remember God and remember God's presence. God has hardwired us for awe. Unlike other species as humans, we have the capacity for awe and we have the desire for wonder. So God put us in an awe-inspiring world. Just think of the things in nature that can take your breath away. Think of the beautiful wings of a butterfly or the gorgeous colors in a sunset. The world was created to be awesome so that it would point us to God who stands behind creation and who is the place where our hearts are finally meant to rest. Every awe-inspiring thing in creation is meant to be a finger that points to the awe of God. So often we stop at point two. We stop at the created awe, and we hope that something in creation will satisfy the cravings of our heart. But none of those things will ever satisfy the wonder craving of our hearts because those things 
are only meant to be the finger that points to God, who God alone can satisfy our hearts. Does that make sense? It's like the family that's going to Disney World for the first time. So they saw all the pictures on the website, and they're so excited about this family vacation. They're driving along, and they're like, can't wait to get there. And then they see the sign that Disney is one mile away, and the dad stops the car, and we're like, okay, we're here. We're going to have our vacation. And the family, rightly so, thinks he's absolutely crazy because this sign has no capacity to deliver what Disney World can deliver because the sign is not the thing. The sign is there to point to the thing that is going to satisfy your expectations. So when you encounter the holiness of God and you have this feeling of awe, it changes everything. It gets you ready to be sent out there. These experiences can come in public worship, in private devotion, in mission service, in close relationships, and in everyday life. When we live in communion with the Spirit of God, the splendor and glory of God breaks through, often in unexpected times and unexpected places, in ways that lead us to that awesome God. In fact, new research in psychology indicates that more than any other emotion, Awe leads us out of our narrow self-interest and to seek the well-being of others. But that connection between God and the feeling of awe has to be taught and then remembered so that we're not left worshiping the sign. Think of the wonder in a little kid at some random thing in creation. For my daughter Jordan, it was frogs. We would sit forever on the sidewalk under the street lamp just outside of our house in Oklahoma. The street lamp attracted all the insects of the night sky, and then they attracted all of the frogs of the neighborhood. And she was just delighted about those strange little hopping green guys that would be all over us. Well, as the parent, it was my job to teach her how cool it was that God created these unique creatures for us to enjoy. That's just one of the reasons it's so important for us to spend time with little kids. Borrow one if you have to. They are so filled with curiosity and wonder. They make us slow down and appreciate the handiwork of our awesome God. They help us remember that those threads of holiness weave us all together. So after this encounter, when God sends us out, we don't get to go out like normal people. We are Christians, so we are called to go out in an extraordinary way. And when I say extraordinary, don't get your hopes up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian who was martyred by Hitler's henchmen, and he wrote, one of the books was The Cost of Discipleship, and he wrote there, that extraordinary should be equated with uncommon living. Christians are called to go out beyond what is expected in society. About eight years ago, there was a social worker named Julio Diaz, and he was taking his normal hour-long commute back to his apartment in the Bronx. Now, he always stopped one stop short of his apartment so that he could eat at his favorite diner. 
On one of these nights, he was walking up the stairs, and this teenage kid comes up to him with a knife and demands all of his money. Diaz gave him his wallet, and as the kid was walking away, he said, hey, wait, you forgot something. If you're gonna be out robbing people all night, you might as well take my coat to keep yourself warm. And the kid goes, whoa, what, what are you doing? What are you, what's your deal? And he said, you know, I was just thinking, if you are so willing to risk your freedom over just a few dollars, you must really need the money. He goes, hey, I, I'm just going to grab a bite to eat. You're welcome to come with me if you want. It's like a true story. So this kid goes with him up to the diner, and as soon as they sit in their booth, the manager comes by and says hi to Diaz. And then the dishwashers come by, and the waiters come by, and this kid goes, wow, you know everyone, do you own this place? He goes, no, I just come here just pretty regularly. And he said, but you're even nice to the dishwashers. And he goes, didn't anyone teach you that you're supposed to be nice to everyone? And the kid goes, yeah, but I didn't think anyone really did it. So they sat during that dinner, and they talked. And then when the bill came, Diaz said, um, you're going to have to buy because you have my wallet. Um, <laughs> unless you want to give it back to me, and then it's my treat. And the kid gave him the wallet, and as they were leaving, Diaz gave him a $20 bill, just hoping it might make a little difference in the kid's life. And in exchange, the teenager gave him his knife. Just a thread of holiness. Now, if you're like me, you need to be renewed and reminded each and every day of God's awesomeness. We live pretty full, busy lives with lots of distractions, right, Sophie? Yeah. I hear this is the case even when you retire, which does not bode well for us, but we need to be very intentional about how we remember and how we tap into this holiness, this awesomeness of God. And so there's this pastor um, and an author, Paul Tripp, who gives us three things that we should do every single morning, and I love a good list so I can check off. So here they are, to gaze, remember, and rest. Every morning we should gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and start our day out you can do it in scriptures if you find those great passages like in Isaiah 40 or the end of Job or in Ephesians 1. But go somewhere and focus on the beauty and the glory of the Lord. Second, we need to remember that God's awesome glory doesn't only define him, but it re redefines us as his child. He has unleashed his glory on us. And third, and finally, we must rest. We must teach our hearts to rest, not because people like us, not because it's easy, not because we're healthy or because our bills are paid or because our homework is done, but because God is awesome in his glory and he has connected us to his glory by his grace. Then, and only then, can we be sent out and act in hope, and in courage, and in kindness, in an extraordinary way. Because we're doing it within this context and within this connection to the awesome glory of God. If the world expects that we promote ourselves in order to achieve fame, then to be extraordinary, according to Bonhoeffer, we need to seek that which is uncommon 
Instead of elevating ourselves, we elevate others. We serve them. Karen Amon wrote about the time that she and her husband were encouraging their young children to choose a necessary person, someone who helps them get life done every week. And then they had to think of a creative way to thank them. So the kids thought of the same person, Mr. Brown, and their idea was to have a Mr. Brown day. Mr. Brown was their mailman, but he delivered more than just bills and packages. He actually brought smiles because he took the time to talk to the lonely widow. He took the time to ask a kid about his little league game. So they took the kids shopping for little trinkets for Mr. Brown. They bought him like a squirt gun so he could ward off the neighborhood dogs. They bought him a gift, a gift card for Dairy Queen so he could take his wife out to a fancy dinner. They baked cookies, they made lemonade, and then they hid behind the door with their noisemakers and their confetti. So when Mr. Brown came up to the door, they jumped out and they yelled, surprise! Mr. Brown, the best mailman in the whole town. It is Mr. Brown's day. He was taken, I'm glad he didn't have a heart attack. He was taken back and he had the refreshments with them and he hugged the kids and he stepped away, I'm sure, with a spring in his step and confetti in his hair. But then like the next week, he came back to talk to the mom and he said, you know, no one has ever done that for me before. He goes, I've been delivering mail on this street for 33 years. People sometimes give him a Christmas card, but no one has ever made him feel the way your young family has made me feel. And his voice cracked, and he's like, I will never forget Mr. Brown Day. Every day and every week, our lives naturally intersect with many people sometimes in person, sometimes on social media, yet all of them bear God's image. All of them, Democrats and Republicans, rich and poor, Gators and Seminoles, all of them. When we connect with the awesomeness of God, that threads of holiness knit our lives together, helping us to look beyond ourselves and beyond the flaws and the quirks of others to actually see the face of God in another human being. And that changes everything. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, you are the author and creator of everything good. Help us, Lord, to see you when your awesome creation and your awesome people take our breath away. Help us to listen and to seek to understand, especially to those who may think differently than us. Send us, Lord, and help us to be uncommon and extraordinary in the ways we serve others with your love. Amen.